This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. The ED is my doctor. Sarah, I just finished a shift a few hours ago. In fact, I think I can still, yep, I can still smell the ED on me. (laughs) And as I was walking through the ED, I was struck by the sights and sounds and, yes, the smells of people in need. We may not always agree on care plans and if the ED is the correct place at that moment in time for these patients to be seen, but I think we can all agree there are a lot of people out there with needs and it can be exhausting just walking through the halls to feel that constant pressure of meeting both medical and physical needs with or without ideal resources. Yeah, you know, my heart goes out to these patients. I mean, it is so overwhelming for so many of our patients because their needs really go beyond the medical. And I mean, I'm not going to be able to fix the real problems in their lives in the next few hours, like poverty, drug addiction, mental health problems, and so much more. These are the social determinants of health. And sometimes I think this sense of sort of futility and frustration is an underrecognized source of physician burnout. I totally agree with you, Sarah. And that's why we're going to talk today about one of those huge social determinants of health, poverty. Okay, but let's step back for a minute. So we have talked a lot about social determinants of health. We've discussed homelessness, addiction, human trafficking, gun violence, and the emerging field of social emergency medicine that studies all of these. But we have never actually defined the term. So the CDC says social determinants of health are conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect a wide range of health risks and outcomes. So for example, differences in health are striking in communities with poor social determinants of health, like poor education, unstable housing, unsafe neighborhoods, or low income. And so we hope that by improving these social determinants of health, we can not only improve individual and population health, but also advance health equity. Right. And poverty is kind of at the center. It's at the nidus of all of these social determinants of health. So I wanted to see if two of our bright emergency medicine residents, Landon and Leo, had a good grasp on how poverty intersects or rather collides with emergency medicine. For example, I wanted to know what they saw as some of the social and physical characteristics of our frequent ED users, also known as frequent flyers. I feel like if you, because you're kind of alluding to the poverty question, right? So when I think about that, I don't know what the correct definition that would be, but I don't know if they would be able to provide like three meals a day. Like, I don't know if they would be able to confidently answer that question. So I would say maybe that, or it would be, you know, snack foods or where are they going to get their source of meals? Like I sometimes ask myself that question, like, how are they getting their food? So that to me is like, okay, they may be more impoverished. So do they have insurance? Likely not, or they do don't know how to use it or how to navigate it, how to access resources. Definitely Medi-Cal. And then if they have Medi-Cal, they do not have a primary care physician because they don't know how to navigate it. Yeah. So poverty is definitely a factor in our frequent users in the ED. A 2019 systematic literature review found frequent ED users were 4% to 16% of total ED users, but accounted for 14% to 47% of ED visits. 
The majority of these frequent users were young or middle-aged adults, females of low socioeconomic status and high school or lower education with public insurance, multiple primary care provider visits, and chronic conditions. Fair or poor self-perceived health status, unemployment, unmet needs from primary care providers, mental health, and substance abuse were all predictors of frequent ED users. Yeah, it sounds like frequent use of the emergency department really does stem for a lot of people from issues with poverty. But poverty also impacts my little babies in B-Pod because one study found that infants born during a period of unstable housing resulting from homelessness actually had higher rates of low birth weight, respiratory problems, fever, and other common conditions They also had longer neonatal intensive care stays, more emergency department visits, again, that frequent ED visits, and higher annual spending on health care. Differences in most health conditions persisted for two or three years. Asthma diagnosis, emergency departments, and spending were significantly higher through age six. So what you're seeing in the adult world, I'm seeing in the peds world as well. Yeah, so this is huge. So to learn more about this topic, we talked with Dr. Donna Beagle, and she has a really interesting perspective. Donna grew up in generational poverty and late in life got her GED and went on to get her PhD. Now she travels around the country educating anyone who will listen about poverty and how it impacts people. Here is her story and why she thinks this is so important to understand. I tell people I know too much to be quiet. Uh, I was born into a family of six kids with my parents who couldn't read and write. And most of my family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents couldn't read and write. So the kinds of jobs that we were able to get were typically migrant labor jobs uh, or temporary seasonal kinds of jobs where you work that day for food that night. So my whole growing up experience was of watching people I love do without health care, do without food, do without electricity, uh, constantly evicted, um, always uh, family members being arrested. And so I have that lens, uh, insider lens, into what does it look and feel like to be born into the deepest poverty in the United States. And that's generations of poverty. And you don't typically hear the voices of people from generational poverty. A startling 83% of people born into generational poverty do not get out. It is the, the deepest poverty in the literature. We're called the hard to serve, the dangerous class, the underclass. Like, okay, well, that's my people. I was born into that. And I see phenomenal people who are incredibly uh, in survival mode. Growing up, our uh, doctor was the emergency room. If somebody got really, really sick, they would go to the emergency room and hope like crazy that someone would give them samples because there's absolutely no way we can buy the prescriptions that are being scribbled. So I didn't know that people could have their teeth past 30. I thought your teeth go in a cup at 30. I did not know that people could live past 60. Because everybody I knew, they died very young. I dropped out of school at 15 and I got married. I married a guy from deep generational migrant labor poverty, just like my family. We would pick fruit in the morning and make enough money to get potato chip sandwiches and then go back and do it in the evening, get enough for 
little bit of dinner and gas to get back to the fields the next day. I actually had my honeymoon in a cherry field in Washington State. And my ex-husband had dropped out of seventh grade high poverty schools and he couldn't read and write. At age 26, we divorced, and that's the point where I I really, for the first time in my life, got connected to four very amazing uh, women from middle-class background who began mentoring and navigating my confidence and my connections and resources so that I was able to get my GED at 26 and 10 years later, my doctorate. And I studied poverty through uh, through that entire time and really learning that we don't educate people about poverty and a lot of the policies and practices and attitudes about poverty are rooted in stereotypes. So that really was the beginning of my, in 1989, forming Communication Across Barriers with one of my most significant mentors, Dr. Bob Fulford. We really wanted to create a, an organization that could work nationally to help health organizations, justice organizations, faith-based communities, schools, higher education, businesses, elected officials, anybody who wanted to make a difference for people living in the crisis of poverty. So that's what we've been doing since 89. How do we actually define poverty? And what is the scope of poverty in the United States today? Currently, we count 43 million people who live in the crisis of poverty. And I say we count them because most we don't count. We have a faulty federal poverty guideline. It's based on an economic formula from the 1960s cost of living. And we use that today to determine what does a family need. Uh, Well, the problem with that is things have changed a bit since the 60s. I mean, you have more women in the workplace than ever before in the history of our society. So we have a huge need for childcare. And yet, the 60s economic formula we use to calculate what families need. In the 60s, the economist said, you don't need to include childcare because there'll be a parent in the home. Uh, not true today. In the 60s, they said, you can walk to work. You don't need to include transportation in the formula. So they didn't include transportation. Well, most people today are commuting and we don't have transportation systems to get people where they need to be when they need to be there. So our response to that in our ignorance about poverty is to pass legislation saying don't drive unless you have car insurance, which is in complete denial to the fact that we don't have transportation to get people where they need to be. I drove illegally for 14 years, and I will testify any time. Being illegal is no fun, but you do what you need to do to survive. When you can't get where you need to go and get your kids and your family members where they need to go, you're going to drive. The other thing that the 60s, they said your employer will provide your health care. So three big things, childcare, health care, and transportation are not included in the economic formula that we use today to calculate what do people need. So the federal poverty guideline is $25,100 for a family of four. And you could pretty much talk to anybody and they will tell you if they're a family of four, that's not going to cut it. And the reason is because it doesn't have those three major variables. If you add in childcare, healthcare, transportation, that number doubles to 50,000, according to the Economic Policy Institute. So you've got a lot of people who fall between 25,000 and 50,000 who don't qualify for Head Start. They don't qualify for 
emergency services. They don't qualify for Pell Grants. So they're falling through the cracks. And, and even just recently, there's two pieces of legislation now to cut the SNAP food stamp benefits. The current legislation that's about to pass is going to remove 3 million people from food stamps, SNAP benefits, and 500,000 children from the free and reduced lunches. So in America, 50% of kids in our schools are qualifying for free and reduced lunch. You have nationally one in five children experiencing some type of hunger. We know that we need nutrition to have healthy bodies. It's going to impact health. Uh, it impacts everything, nutrition. In America, we have uh, infant mortality rates for women in poverty that are equal to developing nations. I know that one firsthand. I had six pregnancies when I lived in the war zone of poverty, and only two of my babies lived. I had a one-pound, nine-ounce little girl. She lived nine hours. I had a four-pound little girl who needed heart surgery right away. And interestingly, when I finally got my education and had medical care, preventative care, prenatal care, I had two healthy babies. We know what it takes to create a healthy human. But in America, we spend more on the symptoms of poverty than investing in our families so that they can thrive and reach their potential and give back. Poverty is definitely something I see on a regular basis. Some of the ways poverty impacts my patients are things like accidental injuries and actual accidental deaths. These kiddos live in more dangerous environments. They lack protective gear, proper car restraints, or live in neighborhoods where they can be shot or assaulted. Also, supervision is often less intense than kiddos who do not live in poverty. Sarah, how does it seem to impact your patients? Yeah, I mean, it's pervasive. I see things like skin infections and lung disease from poor living conditions, diabetes and heart disease related to poor nutrition or barriers to exercise, mental health issues, difficulty obtaining medications and getting follow-up appointments. I mean, I could go on and on. But here's how Donna says poverty impacts our patients. People who live in poverty die on average 15 years younger than people born into a more middle-class context. And many people, because they haven't been educated about poverty, they believe, well, it's because they're drinking too much, they're smoking too much, and they don't take care of themselves. But there was a study on early deaths and social class, and they found only 13% of those early deaths could be attributed to drinking, smoking, or not taking care of yourself. 87% of the deaths were attributed to living in polluted neighborhoods. Flint water is a good example of that. Uh, working in unsafe jobs. Other causes of early death are the stress of poverty, which we now know affects immunity, kills short-term memory cells. People are sick a whole lot more. The lack of access to preventative care is the biggest one because if you go to the doctor uh, when it's the, the symptoms have gotten so bad, there's often nothing people can do about it. You know, I grew up, uh, the emergency room was our doctor, and I think it still is for so many people who live in the crisis of poverty. And I think our own subconscious bias can get in the way of providing good care. Um, what do you believe about people who don't have any teeth? Number one answer in the United States is they're drug addicts. Uh, and why do we go to blame and judgment 
it's because we're not educated about the fact that, wow, did people have nutrition to build strong, healthy teeth? Mm-hmm. Have people ever seen a dentist? So biases are in our subconscious mind. So we're not even aware we're making those decisions about who are we willing to invest extra time in? Who are we willing to listen to very carefully? Who are we willing to make connections for? So health outcomes can really depend on the healthcare provider being able to hear people. And it's it's not only the biases that can get in the way, it's uh, the terminology, the medical jargon. In my research with people who live in the deepest poverty, 92% reported that when they leave a helping professional like a health provider, they have no idea what to do next. So often we're not communicating. So getting poverty informed allows the healthcare provider to communicate, to relate, and to build connections for healthier outcomes. Next, we spoke with Danny Cedars. Danny is a nurse practitioner in the UC Davis emergency room, and she actually took one of Donna's courses and found it really eye-opening. So now she is working to develop a poverty awareness education plan for our emergency department to educate providers on poverty and how it affects our patients and how we can be a positive influence on those suffering from poverty. So here's what Danny suggests. I think it needs to be something that all of our providers, including nursing techs, like all of our staff, receives education on poverty. I think we have biases that are based on, you know, society, media that we think of as in poverty, that people are choosing to be poor, they're choosing to not work, or people in poverty are not working. And I think in providing care where we are providing care to people in poverty, we need to be aware of those biases and realize that they are biases. It's not actually real truth to that. A lot of those things we think about people in poverty are based off of myths. I think having education to providers so that we can improve communication with our patients, make realistic expectations, and be aware of those Things in our care will be helpful. You know, in California, the poverty rate is 15%. 46% of households in California struggle to support themselves with income below the realistic cost of basic necessities. So if you can't afford your basic food, shelter, housing, you know, those kinds of things, healthcare is a luxury. So they're coming to the emergency room because they have no access to healthcare anywhere else. And so we are part of their primary care system based on a failing healthcare system. And we need to be able to help patients navigate that and also be able to provide effective care in the meantime to them until they can get established with primary care. I think this makes the case that the very nature of emergency medicine as a 24-7 specialty is where social determinants collide with medical pathology. Yeah, it's true, Sarah. Many breakdowns in social functioning occur outside of regular clinic hours. I asked our residents how they know when a patient lives in poverty. Picking up on little clues, hard to say, like, poverty as then they meet some strict criteria. But um, clues, things on their appearance, on uh, record of care, like, are they frequent flyers? Um, Are they back because they just couldn't get some antibiotic and now things got worse and out of control? Are they at the tail end of something that just blew out of proportion because they had more important things that deal with first, like food and shelter. and yeah. yeah, I would say that too, like medical literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, frequent flyers, like keep bouncing back for the same reasons. Um, can they follow up with primary care physician? And why couldn't they follow up? It's because they can't, don't have transportation. They don't really understand what's going on. Do they keep getting deferred? Do they understand what's really going on? 
Do they keep coming to the emergency department because these are, do they feel like that's the only access that they have to care? Those are kind of the little clues I pick up on. And do they have Medi-Cal? Is that the only reason why, you know, they can't have better access to insurance? Those are just kind of little clues I pick up on. Do you ask them outright? I feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's more probing questions about them being able to manage their issues and disease and prescriptions downstream. I feel like I should, but I don't know how to. So, because it's it's determining their health, right? So I feel like I should as their physician at that time, but I don't know how to go about that. Sarah, I feel like every time we talk about these issues, it comes down to someone wanting us to screen all of our patients for that pet issue. (laughs) Yeah, that is so true. (laughs) (laughs) So this is why I wanted to hear how Danny screens in the ED. I think I look at when I'm getting ready to sign up for a patient and I've looked through, done a brief chart review, which we all do, I look to see how many times has this patient been in the emergency department. They've utilized the emergency department on a, you know, regular basis. That's already uh, something that kind of you know, piques my interest to make me think that this may be an issue of access to care or poverty. In examining them and having that discussion as to why they're there, I ask questions based on, are you working to start with? So if they're working, if they have a job, and if they are working, how many jobs do you work? Two-thirds of people living in poverty in the United States are working greater than one job. I think it's 1.7 jobs is what the average person in poverty for two-thirds of them are, are working. I would also ask, too, about primary care. Do they have access to primary care? And some people say, yes. Well, you know, how often do you see your primary care? Uh, When you need to make an appointment, how long does it take to get into your primary care? I think just based on looking at, are they working? If they're working multiple jobs, do they have access to primary care? And how long does it take to get into primary care is a good starting point to kind of getting an understanding to the situation that patient is actually in. So do you screen everyone in the ED? It's not that every patient has to be screened. I think you identify and you kind of get that feel for patients that are at risk. And when you're looking to see patients that are coming to the emergency department for that kind of primary complaint, it's not necessarily what we would say is a true emergency. Um, When you look at those kinds of patients and you're evaluating them, that's something that should be a red flag to make you kind of inquire more. Um, And then that should also be something that would indicate that you need to be thinking about a reasonable you know, plan of care, discharge plan, prescriptions, those kinds of things that can be affected by poverty. I appreciate that she at least suggested targeted screening. Yeah. And another screening approach that I really like is asking, do you ever have difficulty making ends meet at the end of the month? And previous research has suggested that such a question was approximately 98% sensitive. You know, Sarah, I feel like the story of poverty is very different from my own. These patients may live in the same city as I do, but yet their lives are far cry from my own experience. It feels like an area ripe for miscommunication. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. And I struggle with that too. You know, on a busy shift, sometimes I forget to slow down and really make sure my words are appropriate to the setting. So we asked Donna and Danny's for some communication tips. I think one of the the big ones is that meanings are in people. Um, Words mean different things depending on your experience to that word. In my research, I, I asked people from generational poverty, when I say, uh, doctor, what does that bring up for you? Day away, they give you bad news. <laughs> when I say nutrition, what does that bring up for you? Uh, that's for people who have too much time on their hands. So often we think we're communicating, but the words don't have the same meaning. So making sure that you say it, say it again, say it another way, using a variety of different examples 
and then asking the person to repeat it back to you. Um, help me understand what you heard me say, because I want to make sure I'm setting you up for success. When a person can repeat back the information, that's when you know that they own it and they're going to be able to follow through. And and I think another big one is is building that connection right away, uh, noticing people, looking, making that eye contact, learning their name. Uh, and you don't have a lot of time, but that doesn't take much time. And noticing something about that person. Oh, you're wearing a blue shirt. That's beautiful blue. I like blue. You've just established common ground. And common ground gives you a, a platform for building trust for somebody to do something that might not be in their comfort zone. So, and, and that's actually rooted in, in research. When you build that common ground, it's called identifying, identification. When you identify with people, you're more likely to hear what they say. So I think that's that's another really good one. And and the, the third one is, is to really get informed, uh, to really know thyself. Begin to examine your own attitudes and beliefs about poverty and the people who live in it so that you are not uh, operating on subconscious thinking and programming, but on your consciousness, really understanding uh, your attitudes and beliefs. That, that shapes your tone of voice. It affects your facial expression, your body posture, and it's certainly going to affect how you interact. I think we can work on identifying those patients that we serve that are suffering from poverty in the ways that we've discussed already and being aware of our own subconscious biases regarding poverty. We need to suspend our judgments and to be aware of the uh, structural causes of poverty. Ask patients what would be helpful and what are their barriers? What do they need? How can we be beneficial to them? Um, I think connecting with uh, patients with community partners and resources that are up to date um, so that they know access in the community that we're in and what resources are available to them. I think that we need to assess the person's needs and ability to do what's needed in their own health to improve outcomes. So having that conversation of what they're here for today, what are they, you know, seeking and coming to the emergency department today, and then also developing realistic plan of care for those people that's something that they can actually obtain or actually complete. I like that. Sarah, what are some tips that you use to help these patients succeed? Yeah, well, I think the most obvious place to start is a list of local resources. But even better is if you have a trained volunteer or community health worker, health navigator, or social worker who can help link these patients to the services and maybe even call and schedule a follow-up. Some other things I try to do, I really keep my communication and discharge instructions at an eighth grade reading level or below. I like to have food available. I work with our ED discharge planners to try to get the patient's prescriptions filled here in the ED. We offer bus and lift vouchers, and I use apps like GoodRx that advertise discounted drug prices. It's also good to be familiar with your local pharmacy policies. Some actually allow for reduced costs for those with economic hardship. Yeah, those are totally practical. One thing that's been big for me in looking at the big picture is to have more conversations with my patients. I like to hear about their experiences, their stories, and it helps me to understand what they're going through. This is actually born out of this podcast and my work with human trafficking that I've had this experience being able to talk with my patients. Donna kind of alluded to this, but it's also helpful to make sure that your team incorporates multicultural, bilingual people and people who have had an experience or passion to understand the struggles of our patients. These dedicated representatives 
can look at the system as a whole, from follow-up to discharge instructions and basic resources. We have health navigators intermittently, and men, when they are present, there is nothing better. Pulse check. Know yourself. Take a moment to look at your own experience with poverty and how it colors your approach. Separate people from the poverty. Watch for poverty, either with your five senses like the residents or ask outright like Denise, but watch for it. Connect with your patients on a personal level. Find that common ground. Use basic language, like at an eighth grade level or even lower. Be careful with that medical jargon and even consider using storytelling to make your point. Say it, say it again, say it another way, and then ask, what did you hear me say? Know your local resources, so if you do discover a need, you can help. We hope you found this helpful. Let us know if you were able to use some of these tips in your ED. Connect with us on social media at Impulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate those of you who have rated us and left us reviews on iTunes. It really helps others discover us. Last year, I went to the emergency medicine update Hot Topics, which was awesome because it's Hawaii, of course. This year, it's at the Kahala and Honolulu, Hawaii from November 5 to 9, 2019. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks, as always, to our department for being willing to explore these topics. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for working with us no matter the struggle. See you next time.